Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a very, very special treat. We have with us author Claire M. Andrews. We've managed to hold her down long enough for an interview before she goes sailing off to the next place. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Very glad to have you. Very excited also. I actually will just give to the listeners. I reached out to Claire right after I finished reading her book, Daughter of Sparta. We always start off with kind of getting into the origin story. So Claire, mm-hmm. what's your origin story? Why were you like, I'm going to be a writer. I got to write a book. How did that all happen? My publishing story is almost like a circle because like many people, I was completely enamored with Greek mythology growing up. Like I read whatever I could get my hands on. I have an enormous book of mythology encyclopedia. That's like all sorts of mythologies across like the globe. I would get like whatever I could. But even though I really loved Greek mythology, I was still really frustrated with it because the endings for women were always absolutely awful. They were often vilified for the very things that men were treated as heroes for. And I remember in seventh grade when I was reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, I complained to my mom about it. And my mom was like, well, if you don't like it, then write a new one. Oh. (laughs) And that's exactly what I did. And it's funny because it was basically like a Helen of Troy fan fiction back then. But then that same first chapter is the same first chapter that I originally queried Daughter of Sparta with. It did actually go in the trash, so it's never going to see the light of day after I got queried. But it's funny that it hung around for like 15 years. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it served its purpose to get the query through and then it was like, never mind, this is not making it in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay, follow-up questions. When you say you're very into Greek mythology, is that something that you were introduced to in school? Or is that somebody at your home was very into that? Or you found it... I want to say that anyone in my home was super into it. My mom, when I was really young, gave me the book of Miller's Greek Myths. Oh, I can't even remember how old I was when she actually gave that to me. I'd say maybe fourth or fifth grade, and I just ate it up. I think that's what like started my Greek mythology dive. Yeah. Is your mom some sort of writer or something that she was like, oh, write your own? Or was just, for her, was the automatic response? And you're like, I don't like the way these stories end, so you don't like it, so do something about it. No, no, my mom's not an author, so she's a really good writer, but no. (laughs) Oh, that's great. She's definitely always encouraged my love of reading. In my house, I have well over a thousand books. Wow. And I grew up in both Alaska and Scotland. Now I also live in Vermont, so a good portion of these books I've had since my childhood and they've gone from Alaska to Scotland, back to Alaska, and now they're in Vermont. So, like, they've been shipped all over the world. That's, like, I try to, like, piece together Alaska and Scotland, and well, then Vermont also. Well, I'm visioning on the map. You're almost halfway across the globe with Scotland and yeah, Alaska. it's funny. Like, I'm directly in the middle now, which actually works out really well because... I'd say like half of my family is still in Scotland and then half of my family is still in Alaska. So I'm not technically choosing which one I prefer more. I'm like, oh, I'm right in the middle. (laughs) And you ship your thousand books with you all over the place? I'd say a good portion of the thousand I've acquired here in Vermont, but there are definitely at least a couple hundred that, yeah, have 
gone from Alaska to Scotland to Alaska to Vermont. That's the beauty of media mail. It feels weird plugging USPS <laughs> on like a podcast, but media mail is your friend if you ever want to ship books long distance. That's a good point. Well, because also Alaska usually has a different shipping rate. It's not the continental US or whatever. No? Uh, if you're ordering something online, yeah. But then like if you're just going with USPS, the media mail rate is the same and the oh. flat rate yeah this is very important stuff we're discussing here how to ship to alaska but i'm also thinking alaska i automatically think of beautiful nature vermont i automatically think of beautiful nature scotland were you in not necessarily in a bigger city so were you also seeing some of the the countryside more also a place of beautiful I, nature i grew up in the i grew up in the countryside i lived in a tiny little village called midmar i did live in this another little bigger village called west hill when i lived there but when i lived there before it was uh, Midmar, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny little village, but it's completely surrounded by forests. Wow. So I'd run around in the forest pretending I was in some fun fantasy story. Do you have a lot of uh, history in those smaller villages, kind of? Does some of it sort of feel very, quote-unquote, like, past-like, just because it's not specifically, it doesn't have the modernization of a big city? Does that make sense? Yeah, you get to Scotland and you feel like you have been transported. It's just very different from living in the United States. Living in Scotland is a completely different culture and it's very wonderful and I miss it a lot. Planning trip right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Going back to the whole writing mm-hmm. thing, after you initially thought that in seventh grade you were going to write, okay, we'll write your own version. You did kind of sit down to write a version at that point? That yeah, you, okay. I did. It's funny because... In it, Daphne, she didn't know that she was Daphne. It was a completely different story in a lot of ways, that one. And the one I did query with, but that first chapter was very much the same, so. And then after you were finished with high school, were you pursuing writing stuff still? Or you were not, there was kind of like a laugh before you got back to it? It was more like a side, not necessarily hustle, but a side hobby. I did know that I wanted to get published. And that's part of why my book, Daughter of Sparta, is very historically based, is because when I was an undergrad, I mostly focused on history and archaeology, specifically Greek archaeology. So I've always really loved Greek history, Greek archaeology. I have a stack of books that I use for reference about as tall as I am. Wow. Yeah. That's one thing that you see in the book is that you have a lot of names and places, etc. It's packed with, you could almost say with information between everything. It's funny you say that because book two, Blood of Troy, it takes place during the Trojan War. And when I got my copy edits, what they do is they also give you a list of the places mentioned and the people mentioned. And I numbered them so I could see exactly how many. And there are over 150 named characters in book two. (laughs) Holy canasta. How do you keep track of that? I'm very not good. Just with my own writing, I'm very frugal with characters. Because I'm just like, where are these people? What are they doing here? I don't want to have to name more people. And even then, I'm not great at keeping track of everyone. I'm like, who is this person again? Where did he go? How do you keep track of everything? How do you know who these people are? I think it's because I do have that really good foundational knowledge of the Trojan War. And so, you know, like I say, there's 150 named characters, but there's only, I think it was, what, five characters that I actually fabricated. Each of these characters is actually someone from Greek mythology and or the Iliad. So they're already there, and a lot of them are like a quick cameo, like, oh, yeah, there's 
so-and-so. Oh, I recognize that name from, like, when I was reading Greek mythology. So it's, like, a lot of, like, Greek mythology Easter eggs as well. Also, like, a lot of people that was like, oh, yeah, it's the... Iliad, they need to at least make an appearance. Were you, either from your own decision-making or from what an editor told you, especially the cameo people who we're not going to see too much of, were you given any some sort of, or again, for yourself, did you consider any some sort of guideline of, if I bring someone in, I have to give him a two, three-line description to make sure people know, or I'm just going to insert him here and those who will get him will get it? No, no, it's necessarily from my editor, but it varies depending on, like, the character. There are definitely some where it's, like, a name drop, Easter egg, kind of like if you're watching a Marvel movie, the comic book buffs are going to be like, oh, I understood that reference, but then, like, others are going to be like, oh, no, I don't know who that is. So there's, like, a bunch of name drops, and most of them I do give a bit of a background on the character. Yeah. I really just remember especially because I have read the first book and I was like, how does she know where she is right now? Is there a map in her brain? How does she see things? Lucky, did you work off a map or do you draw a map for yourself as you were actually writing it? Or you looked at a map of ancient Greece to be like, oh yeah, here, here. You do have a map in the front of your book, but that would have come after. Yeah, so funny story about the map in the book. My editor at the time was like, so you need to draw a map then it's not the map that I drew that's in the book but I thought it was really funny because I was like Google is your friend it'd probably be better than any map that I could draw but sure I can try (laughs) (laughs) so like you know like I'm drawing this map and I'm like oh yeah this island looks like an eggplant and this (laughs) one looks like a bean but okay but I did use my Greek archaeology books for reference or like the maps and it's funny too because Heraclean which makes an appearance in the book. It actually, in the first draft, went by a different name because it took me a little bit of time to realize that Heraclean was the actual name at the time and it was a different name now. Oh. Yeah, so there's other villages and places that are mentioned that I was like, oh yeah, it would have been a different name. And then there's like another village that without spoiling too much, something really bad happens to it in Daughter of Sparta involving a big wave that I had to research what cities back then were there but aren't there now. So I kind of tried to give like a bit of like historical context and stuff like that, but like subtly. Right. So also because of that, and you have a little bit of a note of this in the back of your book about some things that you change historically, but when you're writing and you're making this decision, how much of you is like, we must adhere to all the facts or at a certain point, you're like, you know what? The story's made up anyway. There's leeway. I don't think I'd really personally keep a list of checks and balances in my head. It's also hard to say, you know, because in terms of like historical context, I tried to keep things how it would have been back in historical times. But in terms of the myth and changing the myths, I felt like my goal was to give characters a voice that they hadn't had before. And I also wanted to point out that these myths have often been written or told orally by men or by the winners. And therefore, if there were a true story involved, it could actually be very different. And I also make a point of saying that many times Blood of Troy has at one point in the Trojan War and Helen's like, oh, you know, I bet they're going to be saying that I left Menelaus. It's basically like a subtle laugh or a subtle nod at what some stories say. But like in the end, we don't actually know or a lot of these 
people that really love Greek mythology. Not all of us know what the original Greek myths were because they've been passed down orally for so long. And then the translations actually change depending on who is doing the translating. But the goal I had was to give women a voice that they weren't afforded before. We should have done this from the outset, but oops. Would you want to give like a one-two line about what the book's about, the, the general series is about? So everyone's like, oh yeah, that's why they're talking about that. <laughs> yeah, so Daughter of Sparta is a Greek myth reimagining. It's not a retelling, which I've seen a lot of people say. It's more of a reimagining of the story of Daphne and Apollo. In the most common variation of the myth of Daphne and Apollo is that Daphne was struck with by a lead arrow and Apollo was struck by a gold arrow. And the lead arrow made Daphne hate Apollo and the gold arrow made Apollo fall hopelessly in love with her. So he chased her all over the globe until she turned herself into a laurel tree. In that version and pretty much any version that you hear, you don't know anything about Daphne. You don't know anything about her background other than that she was supposedly a nymph and that she turned into a tree. So I really, I really wanted to give her an actual story, these heroic stories that are afforded to heroes like Theseus or Perseus or Jason. Yeah, and then book two follows Daphne and Apollo as they're basically thrust into the Trojan War. I can't really spoil too much about book three right now, and I'm still writing it, but it's a lot of fun. Is there a title for book three yet? Yeah, it's called Storm of Olympus. Just because you, you mentioned it, how would you differentiate reimagining versus retelling? I think this is my personal differentiation. I don't know how other people would, but I think a retelling keeps a lot of the same basic format. Yeah. I could be wrong, not an expert on reimagining versus retelling, but I like to emphasize that when I say reimagining, it means I like reimagined their story as opposed to retold their story, not telling the story of him chasing her until she turns her into a tree, which yeah. is how I would imagine a retelling versus a reimagining, which is giving them agency and thoughts and making them multifaceted people, which they weren't afforded in the original myth. Yeah, I think that makes sense. That a retelling seems to follow much more the original structure, and a reimagining just doesn't necessarily care about that. Yeah. Yeah. But some people might have a different definition, and I, I don't know. <laughs> well, here right now, we're going to go with that one because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then also, just from a more technical perspective, what happened when you did decide, you know what, I've got a completed novel here, I've got a query. What happened there? What made that decision? And then what did you do once that decision was made about getting it out there? What was my process for publication? Yes. I finished the first draft in about six months of Daughter of Sparta. At that point, it was titled Olympus Rising. I spent some time querying. I got an agent. I left said agent. And then I got a new agent for Olympus Rising at the time. And then when we sent it off to editors we changed the title to daughter of ash and sea and then it was bought from there it changed to daughter of sparta so i finished the first draft what was that in 2015 it sold to jimmy patterson books in 2019 and then it wasn't published until 2021 wow so six years to get it and you picked up an agent regular kind of slush pile sort of situation yeah, by querying, it was, yeah, the slush pile. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. 
So back in 2015, because you said that you were kind of doing writing as a side sort of thing, but what made you decide, okay, I really have a story here? Was there something specific that occurred or you kind of had in the back of your mind that whenever I do finish a novel, I'm going to try to put it out there? I always wanted to get published. So like I did actually query a different story before that one that I finished like in 2011, 2012, and it went absolutely nowhere. But I think it wasn't necessarily like, oh yeah, this is a story that's going to get published. It was more like, I just want to get published. Once your the second novel got you an agent, you look back at that first novel and you're like, yeah, that one was really not. It or you still I kind actually of, yeah. really love that story still, and like someday I do hope that we'll see the light of day. But it definitely does need a substantial amount of revisions. It's funny because it's definitely, I don't know if you've heard of the series, but I'd say it's a mix between Falling Kingdoms and gosh, I can't even remember what else I queried it for, but I remember writing it and then I finished it. And as I was querying, Falling Kingdoms came out and I was like, oh my God, this is the same book. Oh! So I definitely need a substantial amount of revisions. So it's not the same book because Falling Kingdoms is very, very popular. I actually really enjoyed it. So I think it would be to my benefit if I did ever try to publish it to like change it a lot. Falling Kingdoms is, what are there, five books, seven books? There's a lot of, it's a big series. Yeah, that was my intent actually for that book that I queried. It would have been a pretty big series because it followed a bunch of characters. What were there, like six point of views? Wow. Yeah, there were six point of views, and they were basically traversing a continent that was at war. Very similar. Yeah, considering is that you name at least 150 characters, six doesn't sound so many. No, six yeah, is like that. Like <laughs> Also, who knows? If you like the story enough, then maybe we'll go back to it one day. Yeah, maybe someday. Yeah. I am working on right now the dark academia gothic mystery novel that pulls some very, very popular characters from pop culture. I can't say too much right now, but I'm in revision stage with that one with my agent, and it's a lot of fun. It's also very bloody. Well, I was going to ask if you were going to go back to the Greek mythology, but I guess that sounds like not except for the bloody part. Maybe someday, but I think after Storm of Olympus, I definitely need to take a breather from Greek mythology. And there's so many amazing Greek mythology books out there right now that I feel like I'm just kind of piling it on. And I love my stories, but there are so many amazing books out there right now. It makes me really happy. <laughs> it's funny you said it. I have this sense that in young adults, especially of late, there are not that many. The only one I can think of right now at the top of my head is Lore by Alexandra Bracken. I can think of at least a handful. In YA that are Greek retellings or reimaginings? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I think, it, I think it'll, I love the boom that we're having right now for like these Greek retellings and reimaginings because I think that a lot of these amazing authors kind of had the same mindset that I did, that we wanted to give characters, especially it seems like a lot of female characters, voices that we all kind of desired when we were younger. So I don't know, it just makes me happy whenever I see another Greek mythology book come out because I'm like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's good. A lot of times when you query, you don't necessarily hear back from people. But during querying, 
or speaking about this to anybody, were you ever told by anyone of, let's not do the Greek mythology, been there, done that, or you didn't get that necessarily from people? No, I didn't get that with my Greek mythology book. I have been told that about some others. There was like another book that I was writing and someone was like, oh yeah, that genre is dead on the water. You should probably just drop it. And I actually did. I I don't want to say what genre because, you know, I could always make a comeback and I hope it does. Yeah, there's definitely been times where I'll like be working on a project and someone will be like, "Mm, maybe you shouldn't. (laughs) Well... And then they say that, and then like a year or two later, you see a bunch of books coming out within that genre. Yeah, it's always a gamble to listen to that talk. I try not to tell people that, oh yeah, that genre, it's dead. You should just give it up because honestly, any genre can make a comeback. And I hope that all genres make a comeback. Anyone's their dead, so. Yeah. yeah. I think it just takes like the right book for a genre to boom back to life. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if you got the sense at all, because you're looking at much more from having been steeped kind of in, in the Greek mythology. But I had this mm-hmm. moment when I'm reading the book and I'm thinking of Apollo and Daphne, which they sort of have to be together because that's kind of like what the story is, even though it's retold. And a young human having this kind of love interest who's a god who's lived for like hundreds, hundreds of years, lowercase g, hundreds, hundreds of years or whatever it is. That sort of reminded me of when you have like a human and a vampire relationship. It's funny that you say that because a lot of my inspiration for Daphne and Apollo, I don't know if many of you get this reference, but one of my favorite pop culture couples that did not get the light of day that they should have is Klaus and Caroline from The Vampire Diaries. You'll get some other TVD fans and they'll be like, oh, I know Caroline. But yeah, he's like a thousand years old and she's 17. And it's definitely like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty questionable (laughs) age difference. It's funny because Klaus tells Caroline at one time, you need to adjust your perception of time when you're a thousand years old. So I feel like Daphne gets that from Apollo a couple times, but also Daphne still also tells Apollo where to shove it. Yeah, when you have an actor who's just young looking, you're only reminded of the thousand year age difference when it's spoken. But Mm -hmm. sometimes when it's in a book, oh yeah, you weren't alive at that time because that happened 400 years ago. And you're like, wait a second. Mm -hmm. Can you say from writing Daughter of Sparta and then now that you're in the middle of the third book, are you looking at things now and realizing that, hey, I learned some kind of important things writing the series? Like I realized either my process or my approach to the third book is very different. Even not very different, but there are certain differences than from writing the first book, partly because I'm writing a series and partly because it's my third book that's signed. Anything like that? Not necessarily for this series, but I did learn a lot about writing and what I should have done from Daughter of Sparta for the gothic mystery novel that I wrote. Because when I wrote Daughter of Sparta, I definitely pantsed it. I did not outline at all. I like to say that I method write, which is basically method acting, but instead I'm method writing. I'm really letting my characters kind of run away with me. I feel like it makes for some more authentic scenes, but at the same time, there are definitely a lot of things that I wish I had done for Daughter's Fire. Like, I really wish I had outlined, but I definitely use that more for my dark academia novel than say the sequels because to sell my sequels you know you have to sell them with outlines i've outlined pretty substantially for my sequels right so there you go did you intend for the first book to be a series when you first queried it or it was just kind of like well i hope i get to write more yeah, but who knows? I, 
I did. I always envisioned either three or four books, but right now publishing is pretty hesitant to buy more than one book at a time. If you're lucky, you know, they'll buy two books at a time. Unless you're a really, really huge name in publishing, they're very, very hesitant to buy more than one book. So that's why I've been selling them one at a time. Yeah, that's true. As I'm like writing book three, I'm like, oh, I wish I had put that in book one or laid more foundational knowledge for this in book two. But because, you know, like I sold each book without knowing whether or not I would get a sequel, I don't have that opportunity. You preempted the next question. I was going to ask you about that. Because (laughs) I've learned from, like I'm working on a trilogy now and Book one is not out yet, so even though I've got book two almost done, I still have an option of going back to book one if I need to, which makes a huge difference in some ways because then you don't lock yourself into certain things that you're like, wait, I could have changed that just slightly. Yeah, I'm still very happy with how things turned out, but there are definitely times, especially right now as I'm drafting like book three, I'm like, ugh, I wish I'd had that. But at the same time, I'm still grateful for what I've gotten. Right. One more thing, especially because you've got it's the three books now. Do you keep notes for yourself or there's some way that you keep track of when things happen, where, or you know, anything like that? Or you just know, like, as long as I remember my Greek mythology, I'll remember stuff. No, I don't actually have. I mean, it's funny, though, because, you know, I have like 500 notebooks, as most <laughs> authors do, but they're all like blank. Oh. <laughs> or at least they all have like maybe like one thing written in them. But no, I don't have anything for reference but I think because of my method version of writing I can remember pretty well what happens but also the copy editors are a dream because there were definitely times where I pulled quotes from book one for book two and my copy editors were like actually they said it this way oh yeah thank you <laughs> do they always make sure you have the same copy editors throughout a series that could change uh... No. Sometimes you get different copy editors. Sometimes you get different anything. So They're just kind of the research assistants who have to go back to be like, she said this happened before. Let's double check this. Yeah, they're amazing. They're so great at checking things. Even though, you know, I have a really good foundational knowledge of Greek history and archaeology and mythology, there's definitely been times copy editors like, mm, actually, this is what they would do. And I was like, oh, yeah. You're right. Okay. Stand corrected. Well, here's a big question, and then we can kind of wrap up. I spoke to another author, so Linda Rosen. Her episode is before, and she was talking about that she wrote a story that takes place in a winery, so she had to, you know, you have to visit the wineries to do research for the book. So, oh, I have to go to Greece to do research for my book. Were you able to pull that off? The last time I went to Greece was in eighth grade, so I haven't been back to Greece in a while. I did go to Nosos which is where the Minotaur is. So it was fun, like, pulling on that. And I remember walking around Nosos and looking at everything. Like, oh, that there's, like, a fresco in Nosos of dolphins. And I have, actually, a little notebook with that fresco. And it's just funny because as I was, like, writing the Nosos scene, I was like, oh, yeah. But, no, I haven't gotten to go to Greece. That was my long roundabout way of saying no i haven't gotten to go to greece since i got published 
it still is something to sort of have it even distantly to draw upon the distant past so you got to figure this out for before the next book comes out that you have to go you have to it's a work trip you must go yeah i know i know that's what i for like my other book and like my revisions i'm kind of like hmm maybe i should make a point to go to that place and just say it's a work trip We'll see. Yeah, I totally I feel agree. Like COVID kind of throws a wrench into like those kind of trips, but maybe, maybe. And that's also something you can't necessarily rely upon. Was that it? Daughter of Sparta was officially came out in 2021. Yes. So, did, were you affected, or I'm like, I don't know if you know if you actually were, but did your either your agent or editor say something? Because a lot of debut authors. They got affected from 2020 when all the shutdowns were happening, you had all the protests and things like that. Everything was just going crazy and haywire. So a lot of the debut authors, like no one was paying attention to new books coming out just because everything was just a big upheaval. Was 2021 calmer already for, for debut authors or you don't necessarily know? I feel like we were still kind of put through the rainer. Yeah. A lot of us didn't get to do in-person events yes, for yeah. our debut. A lot of us didn't get to do tours, the festivals that we all were super looking forward to, we didn't get to do. So yeah, I'd say we were, we were pretty affected. I've also heard that agents and editors are being worked to the bone because of COVID and a low workforce. So I'd say everyone has, and I feel like we still kind of are. So yeah. it feels like, you know, we're trying really, really hard to get back to normal, but it definitely like comes in waves. Yeah. You know, all the industries were affected, but it's just to point out that how this industry was also affected. Yeah, because like, oh, you're a writer, you write from home. But it's not just that. You have to get a book out there. You have to get people to buy it and know that it exists. Yeah, that's the beauty of Instagram. Ah, oh, very good point. All right. Well, good. So we always wrap up with the fill in the blank. Uh, I really like it when and choosing some storytelling related thing to do writers, editors, publishers, book covers, series, etc. Stories, libraries, bookstores, something or other. I really like it when. I really don't like when. Choosing one for each one. How would you fill in the blank for that? I'm going to like TV shows. Okay. I really like when TV shows stick the landing. It is super rare. I have found that I really don't like any last seasons of pretty much any TV shows. So I really enjoy it when they do. And then I really hate when TV shows kill off characters in the last season or the last episode just for dramatic effect. Basically, like, tossing out any character development that the characters have had over the many years that you've fallen in love with them. Oh, uh, interesting. Oh, what's that? But you say that they, you really like it when they stick the landing. You're not only talking about finale. You kind of reference the whole last season. Like, you got to wrap the show strong. Yeah. Probably the most popular reference. But honestly, I really did not like Game of Thrones last season. But I'm trying to think of, like, a TV show where I actually enjoyed the last season. And I can't really find... I don't know. I really like The Vampire Diaries last episode. Considering yeah. it as sticking the landing. So. Oh, oh, okay, good. Well, we're going to squeeze in one more question. Does that kind of make you nervous or wary or extra cautious about how you're going to end your book three to make sure that it sticks the landing? Or you're like, this is three books. This is not like an eight years of episodes worth. It's definitely a worry, but at the same time, it was funny. One of my friends kind of called me out on this because I was writing a scene that was really hard to write, but it just was also necessary. And one of my friends was like, you're the author. What are you talking about? It's necessary. <laughs> and I was like, because these characters, like, have this background of this is very necessary. I am giving honor to 
their character growth, and I'm not going to kill off any characters just for dramatic effect. It is true. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be doing this right now, but I have to. Whatever Mm -hmm. it is, yeah. Although I will say, book two ends with a pretty pretty big cliffhanger. No! (laughs) A really big cliffhanger. And then you get book three. And then the first three chapters also end on like a cliffhanger in a way. You'll see when you read it, but it's funny because I've had multiple friends that I've kind of let peek into book three and they're all like straight to jail. Just go to jail. <laughs> so, you know, I say like, oh yeah, I'm going to honor these characters. And then I'm also like off with their heads. <laughs> was it, was it? Were you told that it was a good idea, kind of like, oh, why don't we just end book two with a cliffhanger? Because I will set up book three and that's a great way to do the series. Or you put it in there and you're like, yep, this is it. No. Okay. Actually, so I was told not to end it on a cliffhanger. Oh. I was told not to put end it on a cliffhanger because, you know, I wouldn't know if I would actually get a book three. And I was like, I'm going to make the most toxic cliffhanger that they have to buy a book three and. You know what? It worked. (laughs) I want to celebrate this moment, but it's very difficult because I don't want to be stuck on a cliffhanger. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I've had lots of people ask me for the arc, and I'm like, okay, but you're going to hate it because now you'll have to wait (laughs) long for book three. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're laughing. Just to highlight that, we should just cut the audio right here and then... Well, just kidding. Big long pile. Like, that's the end. Now you don't know what happened. Well... Much to look forward to, maybe, but not really. (laughs) Claire, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Work podcast featuring author Claire M. Andrew. To find out more about Claire and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Work podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Work podcast. Check us out at eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.